Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, uh, here we are. We've got the uh, the checks are going out to people thanks to the $2 trillion economic recovery package. Uh, direct deposits are already landing in people's uh, accounts. I'm sure people appreciate getting $1,200, uh, something that is desperately needed in a time when uh, we're seeing unemployment go up at, a, at an absolute record pace. And those print checks, I don't know if you caught this, but the print checks are about to go out. And uh, I've got a little bit of information because I just got off the phone uh, with a source directly involved in the process here. And yes, those checks will um, be signed, not by Donald Trump, uh, by a, uh, you know, some Treasury official, but they are going to have his name right there in the memo section uh donald j trump president trump um well, so that's well, I wonder, interesting I, those sound like collector's items all of a sudden i wonder how many of them will get cashed uh so this is refresh our memory on this john has this happened before we ever seen a, president's uh, a check like this uh we have uh, let me look quick no uh we've never seen this this is this is an unprecedented uh thing and i uh there was some reporting in the um in the Washington Post that this quoting unnamed uh, IRS officials that say this could actually delay the process of those checks going out. Now, it may not surprise you, uh, but I've been told by a senior Treasury Department official that that is not true. The checks will go out at uh, the beginning of next week, actually ahead of schedule. But but this part they are not disputing. The, the decision to put the president's name on these checks the decision, which, as you have just pointed out, is unprecedented in American history. I mean, not even George Washington put his name on the stimulus checks. Um, uh, you know what I mean? It just didn't happen. So, uh, but the decision to do this was made following discussions between the Treasury Secretary, Mnuchin, and the President over the past two days. I'm just wondering now that means so I've narrowed it down to two people that decided to do this. I'm told it was not in the works. This was you know a week ago there was no plan to do this. Five days ago there was no plan to do this. Three days ago there was no plan to do this. This this was discussions as the checks were about to go out between the president and the treasury secretary. So I've got it down to two people. What's your hunch on which of those two might have made this call? You know what? I could actually see it being Mnuchin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. We can show the we can show that boss that boss is happy. But look, John. So how yeah. would that go? So the Treasury Secretary, you're sitting in the Oval Office, sir. We're about to, you know, the checks are going to start landing. You know, the direct deposits are going to go out starting now. The uh, the, the physical checks are going to go out. So you're saying so it's the Treasury Secretary. So Mr. President, I have an idea for you. Uh, we'd have to act quickly because they're about to be mailed out, but. What do you think about putting your name on these checks? Would that be a good idea? Oh, Steve, I could never. No, never, never. <laughs> I would never. I would never. No. You know, to me, to me, it, this little slice of this response tells a much broader story, John. It's one that you've been witnessing every day um, in that briefing room. What you're witnessing, though, is a president who is personalizing everything. I mean, this week in particular, the way that he has sought out basically a new enemy every day. It's the Democratic governors, it's China, it's the WHO, it's Joe Biden, uh, it's the media. And the way that he has sought out those enemies to portray himself as a hero, um, explicitly so in, in a campaign style video that played there in the briefing room, to me, that is extraordinary. And putting his name right there 
on the checks is of a piece with that. Uh, obviously, a lot of presidential leadership is on display at this moment, but it isn't all about him. He continues to make it about him, though. The way that he has framed these discussions, the way that he's framed the federal government's reaction is incredibly Trump-centric. I mean, it's uh, it's really something else. I was there uh, in the front row uh, when he played that video, uh, which, you know, I, I was a little bit dumbfounded watching. I've never seen something like that. You know, the, the uh, this is the White House briefing room. They do there are sometimes charts that go up on those uh, on those screens. Uh, you, you could air a video, but but this was like a campaign commercial. This was like a this was like a long campaign commercial. And in fact, our you know our our, our folks on the Trump campaign, uh, Will Steakin, uh, noticed that. There was a section of this video that was like looked to be literally cut and pasted from a Trump campaign ad. So what, my only question was, who made this thing? I mean, we have. I mean, remember back in the days when we used to concern ourselves with something called the Hatch Act. Mm-hmm. I remember that thing about government employees can't use government resources and government time to work on political campaigns. You remember this? I do. Um, uh, so he acknowledged this was done. This campaign commercial which that's the way it appeared to me anyway, uh, was done by White House staff, uh, Dan Scavino and company, and uh, you know perhaps the White House Communications uh, Agency, uh, which is, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's really something else. But what I noticed was as he was doing this thing, um, before he, he uh, you know, before he played the video, he, he did this long preamble about what a great job they've done and all the things he's done, you know, since the uh, the pandemic hit. And he, uh, <laughs> you just, you, you can't make it up. He says, we're, you know, we're going to play this and then we're going to get back to the subject here, which is how great we've all been doing. <laughs> mm. I mean, that was, I mean, how does this happen? At a moment where Americans are dying in, in record numbers, uh, the hope of, uh, uh, of flattened curves are out there. But uh, you've got a president who seems to be itching to reopen the country. And he had an odd couple of days this week, John, that you were there to cover, where um, first he said last week that um, it would raise constitutional issues for him to try to force a governor to, to shut things down. Then he suggested that he had absolute authority. In fact, he said that absolute authority to, to reopen states uh, and then came back to the position that he'd be working with governors, uh, perhaps allowing them or giving them some kind of a, of a time frame to reopen things. Even on that point, it's, it strikes me that this is a president that uh, you know, has an expanded view of, of his own power, but then at times has not wanted to use those powers. And to see him personalize so much of this at the same time that he is consciously not taking actions that the federal government could have taken, rightly or wrongly, he had powers that he didn't use, uh, is a pretty extraordinary thing. And, and yes, the responses have been political on the other side. There's no doubt that a lot of Democrats have jumped on this as an as a overtly political response. But the way that the president has sought out en- enemies through this and made it all through this political lens uh, says a lot about him and says a lot about where we are. I think that the defining statement from the president at the beginning of this crisis was when he said, I don't take responsibility for anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that he has wanted to take credit insofar as the federal response uh, has been effective. And there have been areas where I think it has been quite effective. Um, and he, 
so he wants to take credit without responsibility, and, and he views it this way. I, I, I just know from you know seeing him, I mean, over and over again. There was that. There was this uh, this moment I describe in in my book where the president is about to announce that he is going to engage in talks with Kim Jong Un. This huge decision. <laughs> And I run into him, uh, literally kind of bump into him in, 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 the, uh, in the, one of the hallways uh, at the White House that are by the colonnade. And all he says to me is, I hope you give me credit. I hope you give me credit. And he keeps repeating that. He wants to get credit. So I think, um, I think that was – so, so let, let me try to play this out. The first mm-hmm. point was where he said – that from a constitutional perspective, it is up to the governors whether or not to shut down. I think that on one level, that made sense. They're closer to what's going on. It's, you know, uh, you have a key, better sense of what's happening in their states. Maybe, okay. Um, but I, I think that he also did not want to take blame for the economic repercussions of a decision to shut down. So now as you're turning to a decision to open up, and he believes there's going to be this massive economic bounce back when we open up. This pent up demand is suddenly going to, you know, be let loose, and we'll be back to where we were. I mean, I think there's a real open question whether that that's the case, but but that's the way he sees it. So he wants to be able to be in a position to take credit if, you know, but for opening up and having the economy come back. But I think we saw him back away from that because there was a realization that. That's all fine and well, but what if the disease comes back? Right. What if, you know, what if we end up in a situation where the pandemic, once people start going back to normal life, comes back maybe even worse, which of course is what happened in the case of 1918 uh, with, uh, with the Spanish flu. So that's why I think in part yesterday he was like, well, look, it's going to be ultimately, you know, we're going to support and work with the governors and, you know, they'll ultimately make the call. But it was a real zigzag, zigzag. And... I think that a lot of it is really tied up into what blame and credit uh, uh, he gets. Yeah, and, I, and look, I think from a, from a political perspective, the, the Biden campaign has been taking a lot of heat of late for not being out there more. I actually think there's very little, though, that Joe Biden could say or do that's going to impact the politics of this moment, not because the politics are irrelevant, but because the president's own performance are going to dictate the politics of uh, of this moment. It's going to be how many people... Uh, lose their lives, how many people lose their jobs, the decisions, maybe many of which are still ahead of the president, uh, that, that could impact and are likely to impact how this all lands politically. And John, I want to ask you something that uh, it's a little bit of a, of a personal question, because um, you're one of the few who is, uh, is right there on the front lines of reporting uh, what this White House, what this president is saying. And I've just been struck by these briefings, some of them very, very long briefings, how much Two hours president... and 24 minutes was, uh, was, was the one uh, the day before yesterday. And what's the count overall? So I think 40 hours of presidential briefings over the last month, I believe. Yeah, is we're that, now nor- that... north of 40 hours now, yes. So they're, you know, they're, they're vintage Trump and, and incredible uh, showpieces in their own right uh, in, the, in, the, in the way that he uh, congratulates himself and, and celebrates successes, some of them perceived, some of them real. Um, and also in the way that he seems to to want to lash out at folks and, and a piece of it, it seems to me a tool in his toolkit, John, is to try to get the press to play along, to try to get members of the media, White House correspondents like yourself, 
to engage in some back and forth, in some banter, take some bait from him when he says horrible things about uh, fake news media, uh, about how dishonest the press is in this country, about how he's not getting credit for things, uh, uh, just false statements about uh, imputing the integrity of reporters. My take, at least, is that he wants you to fight him. He's looking for a fight. Uh, and it's got to take a lot to, to not give it to him in that moment, John. A hundred percent. And and this is, this, is the, this is the way he has operated. But now, again, the stakes are even higher than they've been. But, you know, I, I have a whole section in the book where I, where I uh, say that, uh, where I talk about instances of the president trying to bait reporters and, uh, and it all being a part of a strategy that was articulated uh, at the very beginning of the uh, of the Trump uh, presidency to portray the news media as the opposition party and that's what what you've seen happen but it's really tough i mean i you know i've been in a position in these briefings where he's come right at me and come at me really hard and there's a temptation to 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 hit back but you've got to try to maintain a, a sense of sticking to the facts which, by the way, when you're watching, can look a heck of a lot like hitting back. Um, but you've got to. You've got to, you know, you, you, you've got to stay focused uh, on the facts and not the insults. Uh, but it's really something else. And, you know, the, the, the briefings have become more and more political, which is why you're seeing that they are, they are no longer carried live, even, even by the cable networks outside of Fox as a, uh, you know, as a routine basis. They're often, parts are carried live, but... But there's no way you can take, you know, two and a half hours uh, worth of uh, worth of a briefing on this when a, when a good chunk of it is entirely political. And are you getting the sense, John, from White House aides, advisors, that they're rethinking the utility of these things? We've had a lot of outflow folks, Lindsey Graham included, who say, you know, maybe once a week. Uh, we've seen it in our polling at ABC News um, in the last couple of weeks uh, after a bit of a of an initial bump that the president got in his response to this. He's back. Uh, well underwater in his overall approval and his approval around coronavirus. And, and those those daily, um, nightly, last night's went well past sunset in the Rose Garden on Tuesday night, uh, uh, performances don't, don't seem to be helping his standing. Uh, they're firing up the base, I'm sure, no question, that, that you, know, you come away, if you're inclined to, to believe the president and see his, his view of things, you come away from those briefings thinking that he's He's fighting the good fight and, uh, and vindicating himself. But in terms of convincing the country, uh, I don't know how that's the best use of his time. Well, <laughs> this may not shock you, uh, Rick, but I have uh, talked with uh, uh, senior advisors uh, of the president who have actually kind of quietly wished he would stop showing up a long time ago um, to, to these things. Um, you know, maybe, maybe come and do something brief at the top. Uh, or, or like you said, up here a couple times a week, as Lindsey Graham has suggested, not not every day. But what's actually happened is is the reverse. In the beginning, he spoke for part of the time, but he left he left much of it to Pence uh, and to the experts, particularly Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci. Yesterday, uh, in the Rose Garden, he actually did his briefing without turning the mic over once. To Dr. Burks, or, or, or you know, there, there was no the, the medical experts did not speak at all at the briefing. So it's become more and more and more the Trump show, and exclusively the Trump show. And and I suppose 
I mean, that's the president's doing, right? I mean, he, he's the one that gets to turn over it's, the mic. He calls it's, on people. It's, 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 it's not the communications director's doing because I don't think we <laughs> still have a communications director. And I don't believe the new press secretary has started yet. So, yes, it was, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the president's doing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, you know, look, it's been a moment where you learn a lot about leadership in this country. And um, there are a whole lot of governors that have uh, put themselves forward as faces of this and um, gotten you know, pretty high marks for, for their response, some more than others. It's been uneven. Uh, lessons in federalism, lessons in what the federal government can do versus state and federal <laughs> governments. Yep. Uh, we're, we're, we're learning these just about every day. Uh, you know, it's a horrific story in so many ways. And I continue to think, John, that the the biggest uh, the, the biggest decision points could come on the other end of this because this push now to reopen the country could ultimately be more consequential, not just in terms of the economy that's secondary to this, but in terms of lives. I mean, the, you re- mentioned the, the the very real possibility uh, that there's another set of peaks and um, a danger around complacency. Um, uh, we heard from uh, some governors in the last in the last couple of days warning that the, you know the, the the weather's getting nicer, people. People want to be doing things. You can't. It's not the time for that. And there will be a push. We're seeing it already bubble up in lots of conservative circles, a push to say, let's get things going again and at least get parts of the economy moving again. And maybe that has merit, but it, it does it does carry a, a good degree of risk. And this is an active uh, debate inside the Trump White House. No doubt. No doubt about it. And my sense is that they are moving. They're really eyeing that May 1st day. I don't know the president was speaking uh, at conversations with uh, with business leaders uh today i'm told that he sounded very uh upbeat about uh about seeing restrictions uh lifted or at least loosened uh by may 1st something which many of the health experts say is wildly optimistic but uh you know we 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 may see a gradual process here Uh, as we've said before rick the president ultimately at the decision points has to this point listened to the uh, to the medical experts, and you know, I, I, I'm sure he's going to be listening to their input again. Whether or not he takes their ultimate advice this time, I don't know. But I agree, it, it will be. Well, he has said it himself. Perhaps the most consequential decision of his presidency. Anyway, let's take a break, and when we come back, uh, get a view from the states on this. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're joined now uh, by Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington State, Governor Inslee. Thank you for joining us. I, I want to get right to the, the biggest decision point that you have had uh, probably in, since this crisis uh, uh, has unfolded as when to reopen your state. Um, and I, and I, you've talked about this isn't like flipping a light switch. We don't just all, you know, go back to work. So how, how is this going to play out? Well, in general, uh, we're looking for a, a transition from the social distancing, what you might think of as a, a bit of a blunt instrument that has been so disruptive to our lives and our economy to a smart program of targeted individualized both uh, treatment and surveillance. And we want to get that, uh, at, make that transition at just the right moment. And that moment is uh, one where we have wrestled the virus to low, uh, low enough numbers where we don't risk a resurgence if there's some uh, lapse at any moment in the curve, number one. So we have to continue wrestling this number down, and we're quite a ways away from that. I can talk to you about why I believe that at the moment. And second, we have to stand up an army or or a fire brigade. I think of this as a fire brigade. You know, when you call the fire department and your house is on fire, they come in minutes. 
we have to have a similar response time and similar professionalism and similar comprehensive approach to put out this virus for people who have uh, symptoms. And we have to build that uh, fire brigade. Uh, and we're in the process of doing it right, right now. And that has to be up and running and effective in every little nook and corner of our state in order to, uh, to uh, switch from the social distancing strategy. As you said, that probably will come in phases, not overnight. But both of those conditions need to exist to be able to make that, that safe uh, transition. Well, I want to get to you on, on, the, on, the, on the timeline. Um, but before you get to that, as you're making this decision, what kind of consultation uh, are, are you consultations with uh, the, the federal government? I mean, we saw President Trump declare that he is the absolute power on all this, and then he kind of seemed to walk it back yesterday and, uh, and said ultimately the, the governors will be making the choices, but with his permission, I suppose, is the way he was, he was, he was playing it out. But, but are, you, are, you, are you talking to, to the president do you, or to the president's team, to the coronavirus team? Are you watching any of these briefings? He insults you. Uh, he, he, for some reason, you seem to stick out more than just about anybody in terms of his, of his insult list outside of the, of the press. Um, are you are you paying attention to what what they're saying at the White House, and are you talking to them as you make this decision? Well, we're certainly not uh, paying attention to the just kind of the background noise of the president's, you know, disparaging me. I, we have a higher responsibility, so that's we're not we just treat that as background noise. Although I did find it interesting that the president described the governors as involved in a mutiny. And he gave us authority to do what we've already always had authority to do in our states. It's kind of like Captain Bly giving Fletcher Christian authority to sail off to Pitcairn Island. So I think we're in pretty good shape right now uh, in, in our working relationship uh, with the administration. Look, we have a lot of very positive uh, working relationships with the federal government. I speak uh, frequently with Vice President Pence, and we've had very productive discussions. He's been helpful on a, any number of things, trying to clear out some bureaucratic underbrush on occasion for us. Uh, we have had very good open communications with the U.S. Army, who brought in a field hospital that we were then able to release to New York and other places that have, uh, have their health systems overwhelmed. We have had right now great cooperation with the Public Health Service, who today have about 80 members in strike teams to uh, we bring in these strike teams to our long-term care facilities that have COVID positive uh, in our state, which is very, very helpful to make sure we have the you know, nth degree infection control in them to the highest standards. Uh, we talked to the procurement team. I talked to uh, uh, General P and... Um, and the Assistant Secretary of Health in the last three days about the procurement system. As you know, we have been urging the federal government to be more aggressive in standing up the and fully mobilizing the manufacturing capability of the United States, both for PPE and for the whole testing apparatus that has been in dire shortages. We've had good communications with them. Um, we are pleased that they are beginning, I think, to... Um, uh, see the wisdom of using the Defense Department's supply chain and the enormous power of the Defense Department's supply chain to bring new manufacturers into both PPE and the test kits and the analytical capabilities. So 
we would have liked to have that happen earlier, but it's starting to happen, so that's a good thing. In any event, there's a lot of good work we're doing with the federal government um, and, and, and not being deterred by uh, some of the comments uh, by the president. So, Governor, give us a sense of the timing. Uh, thinking about this, uh, not just for residents of Washington, but across the country, because you were one of the hardest hit early states. Um, and, and I think a lot of people have had uh, kind words to say about you and your fellow West Coast governors. Um, I know you're coordinating some regional strategies right now, but what's your what's your realistic sense of when you might be, begin to, to make that turn, as you said, uh, that transition to uh, to a new way of handling that uh, that emphasizes social distancing less and and starts to reopen pockets of uh, of your state and uh, and of the economy. Well, it's it's much easier and, and and much truer to be able to tell you when it is not the right time than to tell you when is the right time. It's not the right time today or even two weeks from now because the modeling has shown. Uh, clearly that the the curve will start to go up again if if we were to full-scale remove our social distancing measures right now that are having a beneficial impact. You've seen some graphs today out of uh, the central Puget Sound area that suggest we're getting down to an R0-1. So there's been significant progress on that. But the models are clear that if we were going to to, uh, to reopen tomorrow in one fell swoop, that that curve would go right back up again with disastrous consequences. So uh, the right moment is the moment where you have this alignment of numbers that are low enough to give you some measure of of, uh, comfort so that a little blip doesn't end you in a crisis again, together with the the, uh, comprehensive uh, confidence that you're, you're testing in your contact tracing is significant enough to prevent any of those blips from exploding. So both of those, those are the two conditions that need to simultaneously exist. We are weeks away from that in the state of Washington, and I suspect in many places in the country, even though we have been, as you pointed out, uh, one of the more fortunate uh, states as far as being able to bend the curve. So we have a lot more work uh, to do. And as we come out of this, this will be a phased development. It can't be a light switch. If it was, uh, we would again see that curve go up almost no matter when we did it. So it will have to be phased. It will not be today. It will not be a couple weeks from now. So we have a lot of work to do. This question of testing that you raise, um, it is something that we've heard uh, a lot of folks calling on the federal government to take over. Is it possible to have that degree of confidence about sufficient testing without a, a national strategy um, uh, that, that addresses it. Obviously, people are free in this country to go between state lines, even if you were confident that, um, that the state of Washington is in a good place and, and you had testing in your own state, you couldn't guarantee testing from someone coming from California or Oregon or from New York on a flight to Seattle, for instance. It, do you need to see that a national testing strategy to have the kind of confidence that you're talking about? Well, I think that that would be a benefit, but I'm much more interested in a national mobilization of, our, of the manufacturing base in the United States to actually provide us the equipment we need. That's actually the biggest need right now. If we could fully mobilize all of the incredible uh, technology that we have in this country to get us things as easy as, as uh, swabs to viral transport medium to canisters, uh, to the, uh, the machines that do the analysis, 
that's really the immediate need. And that is a dire need. I'll just give you an example. Last Friday, was it last Friday? It may have been a few days before that. We had to, a, a guy who works for our, our state lab had to drive 300 miles from Seattle, Spokane, Washington, pick up 40 vials that have this transport medium, them, drive them back 150 miles to Yakima, Washington to try to, to try to test people in a nursing home that had COVID-19 get into it. That's how dire this is, trying to get the, the, even the most basic equipment that starts the testing uh, program. And as you know, to have a completed test, you have to have the whole system in place. And if there's any missing link, that test doesn't get done. And we have been bedeviled by that circumstances. When we first started this endeavor, we didn't have nearly enough of the analytical capability. The people that actually run the tests we have bulked that up a lot. The University of Washington has increased their capacity now to several thousand a day. But then we didn't have the kits or, or pieces of the kits to be able to do the test. So that's the greatest need. We, we need the national government to do what Franklin Delano Roosevelt did starting December 8, 1941, to, to fully mobilize this manufacturing capability in the United States. We need them to use the Defense Production Act to order some of these companies that have intellectual property uh, to license that property to other manufacturers to start making this equipment. Now, in speaking to the assistant secretary yesterday, uh, he indicated that those uh, that that the government is considering doing some of those things, and I would welcome that, and I'd I'd urge them to hurry in that regard. So it, it's the manufacturing that's the number one. Uh, need from the federal government right now. A national strategy as to who is tested and when, that could be beneficial, but it's the secondary need uh, at the moment. By the way, I should, I should tell you, we have made some progress in the last few days. We've procured through uh, kind of a mystery channel about a million swabs, but that's what's been going on for months that every governor is trying to you know, buy on whatever black market they can find to get this equipment around the world. We we found a million swabs the other day, and they're on their way to Washington. We hope, although until you open the boxes, you never know for sure what you're going to get. So that's the struggle. All of uh, we governors are involved in this mutiny, and we're being as effective as possible. I have been attending these White House briefings now, you know, for weeks, and I, I've got to tell you, the one consistent theme has been. Uh, patting themselves on the back for how great the testing has gone. And then the other consistent theme is hearing stories like the one you just told about how messed up the testing process still is around the country. It's really, the disconnect uh, couldn't be more stark. Just one last question before you go. The the first thing you shut down uh, in, in, in putting in place social distancing in Washington State were the large gatherings, uh, big sporting events, and concerts. I know you don't have a crystal ball. I know this will be based on, on what you're seeing happening uh, as you track this disease. Uh, but, but what do you think is the earliest that we will be back to a p- place where people will be going out and watching Mariners games, going out and watching basketball games, uh, uh, concerts? When, when, when is the earliest that is going to be happening? The honest answer is later than we would like. And, and that's almost the best parameter I can give. And it is, I know it's very frustrating to people that want to put the Mariners caps on and get ready 
for that game. But it, it's really, I just got to tell you, it's really not realistic to say that. And, and the reason I say this is that, uh, you know, we could be very successful in the next three or four weeks and have the waves start up two weeks after that. And, and there's just no way to predict that at this moment. Uh, I think the most important information that's useful to people that I can share is that whatever that day is, it'll be earlier if all of us abide by the orders we're putting in place, and it will be later if we do not. And that's actually the, the actionable knowledge that I can share with my fellow citizens uh, on this. And uh, fortunately, people are heeding that. We've had very broad compliance with this order. And as, as you know, we've bent the curve down significantly. Although, by the way, I do want to share this with you because this is really important. Uh, we had modeling today from one of the modeling uh, entities that does our predictions that suggested that although we've got down to a, an R-naught of maybe one, which basically replaces one infection, infection with another, there's some evidence that that has plateaued and has not been continuing downward. This is very concerning to us because if that's as good as it gets from our social distancing strategy, we would be sort of stuck at our existing fatality rate. We lost 30 Washingtonians yesterday, and every one of those is a, is a tragedy. So uh, the, the, uh, the epidemiological evidence is the evidence and the data we have to look at uh, not the not some other political calculus here, and that is still very concerning to us, even in Washington, that has done relatively well uh, relative to other states. So we got to keep our eye on the ball on this big time. All right, Governor Inslee, thank you for taking some time out of your day to talk to us. We really appreciate it, and we'll we'll talk to you again soon. Good luck. Thanks for hanging in. Thanks for hanging in these. Uh, Press conferences. We're gonna we're gonna mint a medal for you guys after this is over. <laughs> it's something else. All right. Thank you, Governor. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Governor. All right, Rick. Uh, I, it, I, you know, he didn't. He couldn't give an answer on that last question of when we're going to be out at you know major events and concerts and sports uh, games. But it sure doesn't sound like uh, certain. Doesn't sound like we should be talking. You know about uh, about post All Star break. <laughs> it's going to be a while. It's going to be a yeah, while. Yeah, the Nationals. Hey, the Nationals will remain champions a, a little a little while longer. Um, I, and I am I, I find it to be a really interesting perspective because obviously uh, Governor Inslee is a whole bunch of time zones away from Washington and can uh, tune out the news cycle a little a, a little bit more than maybe some of his compatriots on the East Coast, but. Uh, we, we talk about the president and the way he uses these these um, these these news conferences to, to to joust at enemies. It has to be disconcerting to a governor to hear the kind of direct uh, feedback that he is given. To know that if you say something even mildly critical of the administration, you're going to get called out uh, by this uh, by this president, and that it, it it may be the best way to serve your state citizens to just bite your tongue and not give into it, and to you know, to, to recognize for, for what it is that when you're being insulted, um, when someone is saying, uh, in this case, you're a nasty guy, that it's, it, yes, it's a personal affront, but that um, the worst thing you can do would be to engage in that. Well, look, uh, Inslee had no chance to go in the, uh, the, 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 the mode that some others have, have taken of praising the president repeatedly. I mean, Inslee, if you remember, uh, during one of the early debates, when the question was asked of all the candidates, what is the greatest national security threat facing the United States? 
Uh, some said climate change. Some said, uh, I think I think Russia might have been an answer to terrorism. Do you, do you remember Inslee's answer? I do. I do. It had uh, Donald, Donald J. Trump. I, I bet Donald Trump remembers that answer, too. What do you think, Jim? I think he remembers it even more than you do. All right, I've got to run. To, we've got a briefing that I'm going to run to. It's in the Rose Garden today. Uh, and we will be back maybe even before next week with a, I think this could be an emergency podcast situation uh, uh, later this week. But thank you for listening to Powerhouse Politics. Thank you to Trevor Hastings and Avery Miller and our entire Powerhouse Politics team. Talk to you soon. 